when I finished the first draft of this, um, I said to Elizabeth, I don't know if it's quite a sermon. It might be more of a reflection. And when she finished reading the first draft, she said, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> um, so a little different today, probably, but we're, for a day when we're doing morning prayer, maybe appropriate. Um, let's pray. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the med meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. To begin a poem, One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master though it may look like, write it, like disaster. This poem comes to my mind more often than I care to admit. In the last month, I have indeed forgotten door keys. In fact, of the contemporary trinity of phone wallet keys, I have left pieces of in various parts of our county at various times. And by the way, if you haven't yet seen the Adam Sandler rap titled Phone Wallet Keys, I commend it to you. Uh, it's certainly not PG, uh, but forewarned is forearmed. Um, my forgetting has yet to be a disaster, but I can take it further. I've forgotten phone calls I meant to make, paid bills late, and missed appointments, even ones that I had written down. I've needed to be reminded of baseball games, of course, and more times than I care to admit, I had to ask Elizabeth what it was she sent me downstairs to get while she was stuck in bed after her C-section. Worse than this, it has happened almost as, of as often that I forgot entirely that I had been asked to get something. And 20 minutes later, I get a text from downstairs. Are you still getting me a glass of water? Oh, yeah. Your mind is a sieve, she says, as I hand her the glass. I forgot a child, too, at daycare in my defense, but still. And give me more than the last month, and I could tell you about projects started and forgotten. Not abandoned by choice, merely let slip from the emotional game we play with our time. I've forgotten to take away life lessons, too. 
and often find myself encountering the same tired problems with the same lazy replies over and over. There isn't time. How do people do this? Just put it on the list. I'm always glad when I take the time to sit down and write out what I've been thinking about and how I'm feeling, but I find that I usually forget that that's even an option. And I forget deeper things, too. Resolutions made, consolations felt, hopes, goals. I used to say that by the time I died, I wanted to be grateful. Anymore, I think I'd settle for remembering what my life involved. Elizabeth Bishop, story of my life. Some of this, I'm sure, is just what it's like to be me. And I need to learn to forgive that and appreciate the rest of myself more fully. And a decent help of the recent stuff, at least, is because we have a seven-week-old. Is it eight? Seven? Eight? Um, and my job has been riddled with conflict and reasons for despair, especially in the last month. I'm generally conflict-averse, and I've been fired up and hosed off so often recently that it's difficult to muster much of a response to anything. I feel, frankly, exhausted. But if I'm being honest, another part of my forgetting, and probably the bigger and more meaning meaningful forgetting, is rooted in a despair for which I am accountable. Not accountable in the sense that I ought to feel guilty, but accountable in the sense that I need to take account of it. It has been noticed for me that despair is the Alcoda that I tend to come back to. And I need to pay attention to that, or it will take control. All this was the preface to my taking up the scripture passages for this week. I read through them, and my honest response in the moment was, well, I hope they're not expecting too much. But I kept reflecting on the passages, especially the gospel, for a couple days, and I kept thinking of my friend Chris. Chris recently retired from AACS, where I teach English and he taught math for many years. He was Elizabeth's math teacher, in fact, and since he taught first at Annapolis High School for more than three decades, and then at AACS for another one and a half, Running the odds, he probably taught at least three other people or their children right here or on Zoom right now. Two years ago, Chris and I became prayer partners at school. We would meet once a week and share what had been happening over the last week, how our families were doing, successes and failures at work, and we would pray for one another. It was great to get to know him. I mean, it sounds like the whole thing was great, but to be honest, when we started meeting, I often found it bothersome. We prayed before school, and there was usually, surprise, surprise, something I had forgotten to do, or work that had to happen before class started that was preying on my mind. And so I sometimes hesitated to share, and I would aim to be succinct in praying, but never Chris. His teaching load was as full as mine, but he was never rushed 
in prayer. And at first, that bothered me. Over time, it convicted me. And at the same time, I found that it pulled me in. Praying with Chris, I discovered a sense of privilege being there, almost a sense of trespass, like I were being welcomed into a conversation that he and his friend had been having for a very long time. Something like this, I think, is the process that Jesus has in mind when he prays for us in today's passage. Not only in prayer, but in all our actions, he hopes that the church will be a euphony that is growing in love. That they all may be one, he says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Five times he turns a version of this phrase over in what we read for today, and he does it many more than that in the whole Gospel of John, always kind of echoing without repeating this idea. I in them, you in me. Or you loved them even as you loved me. Or that they also may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. And that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus could spin a line. He's very poetic. And the, the thing, the crystal that he's holding up for us and for God to see is that the Christ in your heart has the Father in his. And the love that flows from the Father for the Son goes through you to make itself known beyond you. What Jesus is praying for here is that the Trinity would move like a contagion through the world. Augustine reflects on this triune movement of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, calling them the lover, the beloved, and the love that breathes between them. Here in John, Jesus prays that we too would become the beloved in this movement. As we learn to love through following Christ's commandments, it's as if we are learning the steps to each part of their dance. You are the beloved to the extent that you allow the lover to lead. And you become the lover to the world as your life increasingly looks like the love of the father for the son and of the son for the father. To be the beloved, become the love. To be the love, look to the lover. To look to the lover, sit next to the beloved, sit next to Jesus. I used to wonder how we could tell the difference between acts done through the Holy Spirit and acts done on our own. The best answer I think I have found to this question was when theologian Luke Bretherton said, and I'm par paraphrasing here, that wherever a mother learns to be patient with a screaming child, God's act of love has happened. You might respond that even Christian, even non-Christians do that. And I would say you're right. The lover, the beloved, and the love reach much farther than we are often prepared to recognize. At the cross, Jesus 
punctured the barrier between humanity and God. And through God, or through the cross, it has been creeping and seeping through in all directions, both past and future. We often think of the cross as the bridge that God made for us to go to heaven. But it was also the ladder by which heaven stormed the castle in us. From my friend Chris, I had the gift to see what it looks like to sit next to the beloved. And two years later, just this week, he yet again played Paul and Silas to my despairing prison guard. Chris, uh, Chris became a Christian as an adult in 1971, and he celebrated 50 years as a disciple last year. I saw him in March, and he shared with me that he wrote a reflection for his small group at his church to mark the occasion. He sent it to me, and I finally sat down with it this week. Reading over it, it was like my friend had sent his friend to remind me I'm a friend. These are some of the things that Chris writes after 50 years with Jesus. He says, For most of my Christian life, I have been discouraged by how little my prayers contained praise and adoration compared to supplication. I'm not sure if it's praying through scripture or if it's because of God's work in me or a combination of the two, but I find that adoration has gradually become a primary component of my prayer life. Prayer, uh, prayer is always hard work. People are far more important than accomplishing tasks, and my daily routine should reflect this. When it seems that God is silent, I need to ask whether I am looking for his voice in the right place. Am I expecting him to speak through others? or by his spirit bringing some thought into my head? Or rather, am I actively seeking to hear what he says to me through his word? The Lord is far more interested in my holiness than in my happiness. Sometimes I find old prayer lists or prayers I'd written years ago, and I'm encouraged to see how God has answered those prayers often quite differently than I had hoped or envisioned. I expected instant results to my prayers, and sometimes I need a long-range view to see that God is truly working through them. As I read his words, despairing at my own inadequacies, my lack of clarity, and the muddled mess that my relationships often seem like, and frankly, my bald exhaustion, it was as though Paul and Silas had called out from the cavern, wait, we're all here. And it seemed the same thing was happening in me as, has, as happened in the jailer. Paul, Silas, and this jailer, and then eventually his family, all begin to circle around each other. They share words, and then they wash wounds, and they share time together, and eventually they widen the circle through baptism. In their movements, Jesus draws near. The lover, the beloved, and the love move by this expanding motion 
and they pull the jailer in by their gravity. And this is the same dance that John sees at the end of the Revelation. It's difficult on reading it or hearing this passage to identify who exactly is acting at each moment of the end of, this is the end of the Bible we're looking at. Jesus speaks, the Spirit speaks, the church speaks, John himself invites more people to come and to participate. Jesus speaks again. And then at the end, it's either John or the church or the spirit or all of them. It's really not clear that conclude the words of the Bible. I'm going to reread the end of our reading from Revelation again. And I want you to imagine kind of a churning and sifting crowd moving as we listen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Did you hear the movement that's being described there? Jesus announces himself as the sender of the angel. And the spirit is waiting with the church for the return of the son, recruiting any and all who know their thirst for the water of life. And Jesus is taking his steps too. Surely I'm coming soon, he says. This is, as I said, the very end of the Bible. And I think it's interesting that it ends not with a static vision of worship in heaven, but more like the end of the book of Ezekiel, where we see the prophet sees the Ark of the Covenant take off and fly away. But here in Revelation, the circling fury is instead the churning conclusion of an exile. And to the very last moments, Jesus is pulling more and more people into the circle. And the church speaks with a voice that is ours, but is also somehow mystically the voice of the Holy Spirit. And all of this because the Father is answering the prayer of Jesus, that we all may be one. The Father in Jesus, Jesus in us and we in the Father through the Spirit of love. I don't want to pretend that this is somehow supposed to be a magic bullet for despair. It's not. But it is a reminder that in the final account of things, despair is a false response to the world that God is bringing about. A world in which the barriers between us and God are increasingly squishy. 
for me, taking the time to write things down is probably the most hopeful next step as a follower of Jesus. A tangible claim that my memory, my story of joining God's family will be worthwhile. I don't know what the next step is for you. Perhaps you are chronically distracted and the next step for you is to do one thing thoroughly and completely every day to practice the kind of attention and focus that the dance with God will bring out of you. Or perhaps you need to be more ready to confront injustice when you see it. I know that I need to be more ready to do that. Again, I don't know what it is that you need in order to be more hopeful, but I know that I wouldn't have gotten to my thinking and my realization on my own. I needed help from a friend to get there. And so I pray that God will send you the right friend. That is, if God hasn't done so already. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen.